we come to you father because you are the word in the beginning there was only you and everything was created lord jesus by you through you for you and you are the revelation of the father to us so as we come now to the ministry of the word of god i pray father that that you would speak to us that we we would have hearing ears mind that understands heart that believes the will that obeys so give us this morning once again father we pray the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you speak father for in jesus name we pray amen 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 as we <clears throat> going to the word i uh, want you to keep in mind the messages you have been hearing over the weeks the months but like we say we try to keep every message complete in itself so that you still get something if not most of it what if you listen to the earlier messages it makes it easier to comprehend wednesday if you were there we saw from genesis 1:26 god's first statement about us all of humanity let us make man in our image and in his likeness the first statement in the word of god about man man was made in whose image god's image meaning i am an image the original is god who are we images the original is god one of the first things our professors told in the university when we went was that please read the text don't go to the exam reading the guides have you heard that but you know what in india most students study the guides and leave the text and if one question comes which was not there in the guide they have no clue it was from the text so we are all in so many way guides but the text is christ okay the text is christ so when you and i stand before god and you will say i saw that man and i fell he said he was a guide you didn't read the text so god is the original you and i are images far removed from god but he is the original so the first priority in a man's a woman's life is to know god because if i do not know god i do not know who i am or who i should be because you and i before the fall originally we were made in the image of god and the full totality of salvation redemption of what jesus did on the cross and what he subsequently does in each one of us through his spirit and his word is restoring us back to the image of god image of god okay understand that so god has primarily revealed himself through his word 
And how does that word, this word, if it had two legs and two hands and two eyes and two ears and a nose and a mouth and a body, how would this word, if it had flesh, how would it have walked? That's what Jesus came to show. That's why it is written, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have the word of God, we have the person of Christ, and then God sends his spirit into us, and we keep on asking so that we understand how this word functions in our lives and allow him to change us. So we will see, we're getting into a few serious subjects, so listen, tune your ears, okay, you will understand, just even if you're a child sitting here, the only thing you need to ask is, Lord, help me to understand whatever you want me to understand within the limitations of my mind and Spirit of God, help me. It's as simple as that. He's called the teacher. Okay, What he wants you to understand, you will understand if you seek his help. What he doesn't want you to understand, even if you stand on your head, you will not understand about his word. Because people with doctorates and PhDs in this book have gone to hell because he refused to reveal himself through all their doctorates. So there is something about this book. Unlike every other, unlike any other book. So, it's very simple. God is there. He loves us. He wants to reveal himself to us. That's why he came as Jesus. And he's given us the word. He's given us the spirit. Trust him and he will speak to us. So when we study, understand God, when we go to Proverbs 9 and verse 10, scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay? Not the doctorate from Oxford is the, no. Fear of God. Okay? We don't have this, then God says, you actually don't have wisdom. You have a lot of information. You don't have wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We need this understanding. Like I say, you ask the children, did you ever bunk class? No. Were you always in the class? Yes. Did you listen? Yes. And what's your problem? I did not understand. Okay. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We need understanding of our God. The only God, the living God. If you don't have understanding of our God, even of our prayers, we don't understand why it is not answered often. Because we say, and it is written in the Bible, nothing is impossible with God. Right? Yet, if you look, God has limited himself by his own word and by his own holy moral nature. There are certain things God will not do. God will not do. His power is unlimited, but constrained by his own character. James chapter 1, verse 13, scripture says, James chapter 1 and verse 13, scripture says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. God is never tempted by evil. God does not sin. So is it impossible? Nothing is impossible for God, God says. Understand what it means. 
God is not tempted by evil. The Apostle John will say in another way in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 and 6. He will say, I'm sorry if I didn't uh, give it. Yeah. This is the message uh, we have heard from God and declared to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Meaning in God's character there is no dark spots. No. Absolutely. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Why is this important? Why is this important? Because often some or many of our expectations or desires or prayers are contradictory to the very nature of God. But we use this statement saying, Lord, I am asking for this because it is written, nothing is impossible for you. And nothing is impossible for him or her who believes. God says, do you also know who I am? Do you have the knowledge of the Holy One? From a moral standpoint, God cannot change. If anyone is going to do the changing, it will have to be you and me. And most of the time, our lifelong battle are aimed at somehow trying to change God and bring Him down to our level, which never happens. Because God is God, He cannot lie. Because God is God, He cannot sin. Because God is God, He cannot violate His own character. You getting the picture? Understand why we need the knowledge of the Holy One. The more we understand God, it will also define our fellowship with God and our prayer life. Start defining everything, okay? Because we pray often, nothing seems to happen. We study the Word, nothing seems to be happening. We confess the Word. Nothing seems to be happening because we are not understanding the nature of God. Understand the nature of God. He's holy. He does not violate his own character. He will never violate his own character. This universe he created is based on laws. Some we have discovered through the tool. I'm using the term tool called science. Okay? Why did I say that? Some we are still on the way of discovering as science is progressing. Science deals with facts. God is truth. But God operates on higher laws, many of which are beyond our knowledge. That doesn't mean God's kingdom is lawless. Let me ask you this simple question. Does an aeroplane, when it takes off, break the law of gravity? Instead, it supersedes the law of gravity by using a higher law called Okay? Pastor Vijay will explain to you in detail if you want to know. Aerodynamics, whatever dynamics you want to call it. Now let me ask you this question. When did the first flight take place? We know 100 years back. Right, brothers? But do you think the law of aerodynamics existed only 100 years back or from the beginning of creation? 
Right? When did we discover it? When did science discover it? This is the difference between truth and science. Between truth and science. Truth is set. Because it's God. God said, I am truth. Science is in the process of discovering facts. What children of God should do is that any scientific fact which contradicts the truth of God is a lie. Reject it. It doesn't matter which law or which land ratifies it. It is still a lie. That's how you how you deal with this. Because God has established laws. And some of the laws we are still discovering. Most of the laws I believe we don't even know. We don't even know. We don't even know. Because there are laws which we do not know. God doesn't break down one law. No, he doesn't. Because he created those laws. What he does is, he uses one law to supersede another law. So, do you walk on water? No. But can you walk on water? If you know the law by which you superseded, the law that pulls you down. We don't know yet. One day we will. So, we, as we grow in truth, we will actually see that God does not violate the laws he has created. But often he operates on higher laws which we are not aware of. And we are in the process of discovering it. But the way of discovering it is not the way of science primarily. It's the way of the knowledge of the Holy One. That is why all those great scientists of the past, all great ones, were incredible believers of God. And some of them, like Isaac Newton, whose laws we quote in every science class, most of his life he did not spend in the lab. He spent trying to read and dissect the book of Revelation and Daniel, which people do not even know. He was one of the best teachers of eschatology. But they were men of God. They're men of God. But today, we have what we call godless scientists who are using science as a tool to repudiate The truth of God. But science can never replace God. Because that's the order which he has built into this world. While the devil and his cohorts are basically magicians. You have to read C.S. Lewis' book, The God in the Dock. God works miracles, devil does magic. God works miracles. Miracles are based on God's laws and many miracles we don't understand because we don't understand his laws. The devil does magic. So when the devil tells Jesus, turn this stone to bread, it's a temptation not only to his desire of his flesh, it is also a temptation to indulge in magic. Because when Jesus multiplies bread, he doesn't make stone into bread. Wheat, corn, bread. He multiplies bread into bread and fish into fish. That's his law. You and I also can multiply bread. But we are caught in the laws which God has created. If I get a handful of wheat seed, I can sow it, I can plant it, I can water it, and everything gathers over a period of year, I can have enough wheat to feed 10,000 people. But God can limit time because he's God and the laws and multiply it. And you and I don't know that law. He does. He doesn't break his laws. 
So sometimes when we ask in our prayers, many of our records are contradictory to his nature and to his laws. Understand, that's why it is important to know. Otherwise we will go very discouraged and disappointed in life as Christians because he says, I prayed, he did not answer. But he did not answer, not because he didn't love you, because you did not know him. Who he is. What does it mean? It means God does not function in lawlessness. He does not contradict the law or violate the laws he has built into this world. Just give, let me give you an example. I didn't give you that scripture. But if you go to the book of James and chapter 3 and verse 9. And 9 to 12. Chapter 3, James chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. Got it? Okay, this is an aside. I'm saying how laws operate. And when we work contradictory to this law, and then our prayers are not answered. Okay. He's talking about the tongue, our words. With it, we bless our God and Father with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Why? Does the spring send forth fresh and bitter from the same opening? No. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt, water and fresh. What is the law here? God says, let's say, Peter. Let's say Peter, okay? He's, he's just a bakra today, okay? Peter. Let's say Peter is married. He's not married. Let's say he's married, okay? Every day he prays to God. And every day he curses his wife. Do you think the prayers will be answered? No. God says it's contradictory. It's contradictory. It doesn't work. God, it's contradictory. I have set laws. He says, I have set laws. Doesn't work. Lord, I've been praying, I've been fasting. He said, I know that. I say that, that is fresh water. But the problem is out of the same mouth, bitter water is also coming. And you're contradicting yourself. He said, I am not that. Not that. That's why I said we need to know God through the revelation of God in scripture, not outside scripture. Not because somebody says something which cannot be clarified or ratified by the word of God. He is ultimately Revealed in this. That's why he said, my word is forever settled in the heavens. Heaven and earth will pass away, not even a dot from my word. He says, I have exalted my word above all my name. What is God is saying? He says, to us, to you and me, I have revealed part of me through my word and I have bound myself with my own word and I will not do anything outside the boundaries of this word. So we have this incredible security to know that if I know the word, understand the word, we understand the ways of God and if I stick to that, there is an answer. Because I know how God performs, how God works. So understand these things about God. God is holy. He will not do anything that violates his character to it's not a lawless, lawless God. One of the laws which affects all of us, all of us, irrespective of who we are, is said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 and uh, 8. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he sows to his, sows to his flesh, will also of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit, will of the of spirit reap everlasting life. Are you seeing this law? All our prayers, all our fasting, even all our gifts, which are given by God, will not change our life if we walk in opposition to this law. If we walk in opposition to this law. If you walk in opposition, you will reap according to what you So you can be, your birth can be supernaturally be proclaimed. You can be separated for a purpose from your birth. You can be anointed more than anybody else known in human history. But Samson will still die a blind slave because of what he sowed. Every other thing cannot be overruled by this, is overruled by this one law. You getting it? What you sow, you reap. If you sow in the flesh, what do you reap? You reap corruption. Corruption leads to ultimately death. So in the spirit, God says you reap everlasting life. So God will not violate or contradict the laws he has built this world in. When his own son came in the flesh, he came with these laws and walked in those laws. That's why he said I have come to fulfill the law. Okay? This brings us to a third proposition, which I believe is the most important of the three and then later things we are looking at today. Because that's the way he created us. Unlike every other creation, every other creation which he created on earth, everything, we alone were created different because we are created in the image of God. And what is primary part of that image. God is a spirit, so not that your eyes and your nose and your ears and all that, no. But God is a spirit, he is not a physical body, but he sees, therefore we see. We hear, he hears, therefore we hear. So we are talking not about that primarily. It is the most important part of God's likeness in humanity is the freedom to choose. So that's what God is, he chooses. The freedom to choose. Everybody sitting here, everybody in the world has the freedom to choose. And man man alone, like I said about every creation, has the freedom to choose. He did not create fleshly robots or mechanical beings over which he exercises remote control. No. He has exercised. He has created Beings in his likeness, the freedom to choose. And it is, it's divine, it's holy. That's why if you lock up a lion in a cage, he doesn't sit there and plot and plan how to get out. That's it? No. Have you ever, like I said last time, have you ever heard about a dog divorcing his wife? Or a cat feeling bad because it stole milk. Think. 
we have the freedom to choose. That's what Genesis 1.26 says. With self-consciousness and self-determination. But we are limited by the world we live in. Yet with enough freedom to choose. That's what makes us different. Therefore, even when it comes to our salvation, God desires to save us from our sins and take us in eternity to Him, be His own children and be a father unto us and change us into His likeness in the process, but He will not do this by overriding or overruling our freedom to choose. So every day we have to choose. Because you often hear children and some childish adults saying, why doesn't God just make me good? Right? Haven't you thought that? Why doesn't God just make me good? But the problem is if he did that, that would not be goodness, that would be slavery. God will do everything possible, every means possible to get our attention circumstances, people, messages, whatever he can do so that we can choose to be good but he will not make me and you good unless we choose. We have to choose. It's a divine thing which God has given man. Man alone has the power to choose. He will not violate that, our personhood, our freedom to choose. God can suffer for us, even die for us on the cross to redeem us, but that is the final appeal that he makes through his own son. But he will not force us against our will to choose. We, you and I have to choose. Those of you are following the news, some of you, I don't know, most of you don't follow the news, but if you know what's been happening in the US the past one week or ten days, I don't know how you pronounce the town, but the town I think is called Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that town. Do you know what was happening over there? A bunch of neo-Nazis were having a procession, and there was a counter-procession. There was violence. One crazy guy drove his car. One woman got killed in the whole process. Strange. And then yesterday in Boston, there was another bunch of hundred only turned up, same guys. But not same guys, a little different guys. And counter-protesters, 20,000 turned up. But you do not know what is really happening. People don't even see what is really happening. America is the only nation, the only nation on earth, primarily, where you have a constitution right to say what you want. No other country. No other country. You have the freedom to say what you want, even if it is wrong, even if it is obnoxious. So the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis are obnoxious, but you have a constitutional right to say that. And why is it so important? It is so important because that freedom should not be taken away. When that freedom is taken away, then there are arbiters sitting away who will determine what you can say and what you cannot say. And you already saw in one pastor's 900 messages being taken away from YouTube because one set of people decided this is hate speech. If you want to go by what the people are saying, this is hate speech. This is hate speech. Because it speaks strongly 
in emphatic tones on every form of sin. So you don't applaud neo-Nazis. They're a despicable group. But you need to protect free speech. That's the right. And you cannot violently oppose those who are using a constitutionally mandated right. In India, let me ask you a question. Can you on public space speak anything derogatory of the PM? You'll be in prison tomorrow. It's a free country, but we don't have rights. Rights have been taken away. People in Mumbai, Karnataka, all have been arrested because of Facebook posts, something that was derogatory about the PM. You can call Trump every name under the sky. You can even say, I want you to see you dead. You won't get arrested. Unless you're plotting to kill him. It's very, very important. Very, very important. Because once that freedom to speak is silenced, people who are wicked people at the top, ultimately everybody is getting more wicked, not more righteous, unless you know Christ will use those laws to silence voices. That's the greatest danger that happens. Understand when you read news what is happening and don't go by public opinion. You have to know what is really important in this issue. Neo-Nazis have been in America for years and years. Every time, they, every year they have processions. How many people come? 100 come, 200 come. Let them have proceed and go. But don't silence free speech. Because what's happening in the past one year in America, the leftist group are silencing voices. You cannot come to our college and speak. We will burn. We will shut you down. That never happened before. That never happened before. Neo-Nazis are terrible. And who was the greatest enemy of neo-Nazi? Do you know who was the greatest enemy of neo-Nazis? The one who killed the maximum number of neo-Nazis was Joseph Stalin. But Joseph Stalin killed Three times or four times more people than Hitler did. Understand history and understand how history works. Because we look at all these things without realizing a small event happening 10,000 miles away from us is going to affect everybody because the whole plot is to take from us the freedom to speak. So that's what's happening in every state in India now. New, new legislations coming. I can buy what I want. I can go to a supermarket and choose whatever I want. I have the freedom to pick my mobile, my operator, my clothes. Everything you are free to pick. It's a business field. You can pick and choose. But you do not have the right to choose your God. That's the most important choice you will ever make in life. That choice the government dictates. Have you thought about it for a minute? You have the freedom to make every choice. One choice. One choice. If you want to convert, you have to go to the collector and submit an affidavit. Why? It's my choice. I have the right to choose what I believe and whom I believe in. It may be right, it may be wrong. It's a God-given right. We don't realize we are all being affected because the whole world is one village. No event is in isolation. It is all part of a huge strategy to take our freedoms away. And that's why I said the greatest freedom God has given us when he made us in his image is the freedom to choose. 
I can choose wrong. I can keep on choosing wrong. I can choose and reject God till the end. God allows it and go to an eternity without God. It's called hell. But God says that's your choice. I will do everything possible to save you. I will send prophets. I will send pastors. I will send apostles. I will send my son. He will die. He will bless. He will invite you. But you choose. I will not override your freedom to choose. That is truth. That's important. God doesn't make you and me good. He shows you and me what is goodness and says you choose. And he says if you choose goodness, my spirit is there to help you to walk in it. Even that you don't have to do alone. But if I choose evil, the devil says I am there with you to empower you to walk in evil. So we are caught between these two. So if God made me good, I would be a slave. Because he has overridden my freedom. To choose. God doesn't want, doesn't want slaves. He wants children who obey Him because they know who their father is and because they love Him. So God will walk away if you keep on choosing against Him. But to make choices, right choices in life, what do we need? Information. That's what Hosea 4, 6. Now by now we are all experts in Hosea 4, 6. Yes, Deepika, we know it very well, right? My people perish because of lack of knowledge. Because lack of knowledge. Today, of course, when God is talking about Hosea 4, 6, this is basically the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of God. But even in secular terms, anybody who prospers in any career is because you acquired more information and more skills and try to be good in that field, you will excel. That's why God says be excellent in what is good. When it comes to moral choices which will define eternity, God says, my people are destroyed because they don't have information. They don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. Why? Because to make choices, I need knowledge. I need knowledge because... At the end of the day, everybody sitting here, including me, is the sum total of choices we made. And the choices were made because of the knowledge we had, true or false knowledge. But the greatest knowledge you and I need is the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of the ways of God, not education. Education you get in schools. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the ways of God. You know what D.L. Moody said? D.L. Moody said once, if you find a guy stealing nuts and bowls from a railway track and you send him to college, he will come back educated and steal the whole railway track. Why? Because his heart hasn't changed. The man hasn't changed. He was Earlier he didn't have the information, so he only stole what? Nuts and bowls. Now you educated him and he comes And he realizes, boy, what a fool. I wasted my life. I can steal this whole railway track. So we need the knowledge of God. And we need the knowledge of the ways of God. That's the true knowledge. That's Moses' incredible prayer. The wisest man of his generation in secular knowledge. Exodus 33, 17. Lord, teach me your ways. Show me your paths. Teach me your ways. If I do not, Exodus 33, 17, please. We know it anyway, we know it. 13, 33, 13. 
Teach me your ways. That's what Moses is saying. If I have found grace in your sight, show me your way. Show me your way, Lord. Teach me. That should be our prayer. Lord, I need to know you. I need to know your ways because they both are the same. Okay? We are not. We could be one person and our ways could be another person. So there's an incredible contradiction. Okay. So we are contradicted by all these public figures. We hear about the PM, what he did in Gujarat, and then he comes with his all his suit and boot and gives his incredible speech and says, is he the same man? Trump comes and his inauguration gives an out of this thing, incredible inauguration speech, and then he tweets something and says, is this the same man? But God says, I and my ways are the same. There's no contradiction. So he says, if I need to know you, I need to know your way. Teach me your ways. And if I know that, I have the knowledge, increasing knowledge of to make the right choices in life. And if I don't have it, even though I may be living, I am yet, I am dying. I am dying. That's the question Jesus asked the rich man in Luke chapter 12. says, I will do this, I will pull down my barns, build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul you have many goods laid up for many years, take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. He said, successful entrepreneur. Today's terms we will say, I'm going to buy this company and buy this company and merge it and buy it into a bigger company and I'm going to expand and I'm thinking about sending somebody to India and take that company and to Africa. He is expanding. And he says, really? And then like Bill Gates, I'm saying, I'm going to hand over to a board and I'm going to eat, drink and be merry. Still the richest man in the world. And God says, fool, fool, this night you're going to die. Did you make choices that was really relevant to eternity? Did you make those choices? Did you make those choices that were really So understand what God is saying. Often our prayers are not answered. It is not because we do not have a prayer answering God. But sometimes, if not many times, our prayers violate the very nature of God. George Muller, like I said yesterday to the young people, the one who's always put across as a man whose prayers were all answered, he said, Prayer apart from scripture is 90% illusion. Prayer apart from scripture is 90% illusion. What does it mean? Simple, simple example I'm going to say. Young children, because this house is full of broken people, often single mothers, broken homes, so many. So many. Take an example of an orphan or a child whose home is broken or a wife whose husband is abusive. The woman prays and prays and prays and prays and prays and prays and prays. Nothing happens. And she's asking, Lord, why is it not happening? Why is nothing happening? Because God says, his free will is sovereign. I cannot violate it. I will do everything possible for him to choose. But if he doesn't choose, I will not violate it. A child may be thinking, Lord, why am I my home like this? Why is my father like this? Why is my mother like this? Oh Lord, oh Lord. God says, my child, I hear you. I see your cries. I see your tears. I will be a comforter. But I will not change that situation. 
unless they choose to change. Because I will not violate what I have given, the freedom to choose. So whenever situations are involved with another person, our prayers may often go unanswered. If that person chooses not to obey God. Every other prayer that is connected with us and us alone is easier to get answered. But it affects somebody else and somebody's will is involved. Please understand God's nature. He does not violate what he himself has ordained. So this morning, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So the title of today's message is Put Away Childish Things. If you want to be a man or a woman in God's sight, not in age, but in maturity, put away childish things. You know why we remain as a child? Because we refuse to grow up in the knowledge of God. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter will say, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in both. Grow in grace and grow in Knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, you know what this two is, this two means? Let me explain to you in an example of a young child. I'm always looking at the children, okay? Do you remember this, not before these fancy cycles and came when we were young? You know, this only one cycle was there, the normal cycle. And you loved cycling, but the problem was your feet did not reach the pedal. So boys would put their legs through like this and go like all kind of things. Okay, Now you know what happened. You had the knowledge of cycling but you did not have the grace to cycle. Because your legs were too short. There are a lot of people in this church especially. They have the knowledge but they didn't grow in grace. That's why scripture says Jesus came first with what? Grace and truth. We receive the truth and go home, go home, we forget to receive grace. You say, Lord, I need grace. I need the power of your Holy Spirit to understand and to keep what you have spoken to me today. So scripture says, grow in grace and the knowledge of, otherwise what will happen? Our lives will be full of accidents. Because we have information and that information doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. How many of you have seen Mary Poppins? Mary is popping. Haven't you heard seen Mary Poppins? One of the most beautiful old Disney cartoons you could see. I guess you kids have seen Mary Poppins. The lady with the umbrella. Okay. And all the songs. They were children. And there's a real recorded event of a child who watched Mary Poppins and then jumped from a terrace with an umbrella. And died. That's how so many believers are. They see something, they hear something, and before you know, they have jumped from their terrace with a spiritual umbrella, which doesn't hold weight because you do not have the knowledge of God. And then they say, there's something wrong with you. God said, honey, there's nothing wrong with me. Never will be anything wrong with me. So let us put away childish things. Why? Because most 
of our issues in life are connected, like I said, with relationships. Life, yesterday if you were there, life is what? Some total of relationships with God and with man. Some people have no relationship with God, but with man. Life is full of this. And most of our conflicts are also, all our conflicts, if I, if not some or most, are interpersonal. What does it mean? There are other persons, will is involved. Right? Oh, I'm looking at some faces and said, if I had the power to bend some wills, uh, I would bend it. Like I said, God will not do, will do everything except force anyone against their own will. The Samson will die. Saul will be killed by the Philistines. The sword will not depart David's house. The prodigal son will walk away. And none of this contradicts of who God is. So grow in the knowledge of God. and Please learn to put away childish things. And childish and wrong impressions of God and how he works. So we will look at a few childish things today. Okay? Few examples. First I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 verses 6 and 7. He also says in another... Okay. Not six, seven and eight. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered a prayers and supplication, this is talking about Jesus Christ when he came in the human body. He prayed and supplications with vehement Christ and to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And though he was his son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. My question to is, we see Jesus praying incredible prayers, like none of us can pray. And then scripture says, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Why should he suffer? Why didn't he just go, I heard your prayer. And he waves a hand and Jesus' prayer is answered, right? But that's basically what we expect. Lord, I have fasted and I prayed. Now answer. God said, I didn't do that for my son. Because that's how we see God. Let me ask you this question. Fathers here, I see Samir smiling. Let's imagine Samir, okay? Imagine Samir is at home and Joanna comes to him and says, Daddy, please do my homework while I go to play. That's a prayer. That's a loving prayer from a child to the father. Daddy, do my homework while I go to play. Will he answer? Yet, we expect God to answer and do our work while we play. Just look at Paul telling Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying of many hands. Does Timothy have a gift? Imagine if you and I were Timothy. Received the gift from the laying hands of Paul who saw Jesus. So this is like direct line. Jesus laid his hands on Paul. Paul laid his hands on Timothy. Timothy said, that's enough. I got a gift, man. 
Listen to him what he says in the next chapter. Chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. What does it mean? You better work hard. The world is destroyed because of lazy preachers. Lazy preachers who do not work on this. You have a gift? God said that's fine. Now you better get your act right and be a hard worker. God is not going to do that for you. God is not going to do that for me. God is not going to do that for anybody. You may have a gift. Work hard. Work hard. Two, shun profane and idle babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness. What? Redeem your time. Don't waste your time with people and things that is a waste, total waste. Work hard, don't waste time. Simple two examples to prosper in any field. Work hard. No, I have prayed. God said, I heard you pray. Now work hard. Our problem is we want solutions without work. Solutions without work. That's what children are. Oh, I have prayed. I will pass. Did you work? Did you study? Do you want God to violate his own nature? That's when I get so mad with the modern day preachers. So mad. Oh, stand near the bank. And claim, let the wealth of the wicked come to the righteous. Lord, let it flow into my account. That poor Hindu, the Muslim has worked for 25 years and put his savings over here. And you dud who doesn't work is asking for his money. And you're violating the character of my God. Does God bless like that? The magicians who come on Christian TV. Claim, name, claim, name, claim, name. You're violating God's own character. What did Jesus come and do? Sat there in a hammock and claimed and named. He worked hard and he suffered in what he worked. That's how genuine success comes. That's why God says be excellent in what is good. That's why I always ask people these days, whenever people come to me till yesterday, what is that one thing you do well? One thing. One thing. Because most people are like me. One talent. Some have two, three, four. Most are like me, okay? Common denominator, me. One talent. One talent. God says, if you know that one thing, work hard on that and be excellent in it. And His grace is there to help you through that. Don't go through life being lazy and being excellent in nothing. One thing. One thing. Because there is nobody here who is sitting to whom God hasn't given one thing. Then he will be violating his own nature. He's not a father. He's the father. And he's given every child of his one thing at least. Work on it. Be the best. You're not competing with somebody else. You're living your life in front of God. You want to be the best for your father's glory. When you stand there, it doesn't matter who recognized you on earth or did not recognize you on earth. When you stand there, he will say, well done. What does he say first? What does he say first? When you work hard and you bring that mark list, what does your father say first? Sabash. The first thing, what is he saying? You have worked hard, you have done it well, you have done it right the way, now the marks are showing. Well done. Good. It's not only that you did well, you did it which did not violate the character of God because Jesus said, there is only one who is good, that is the Father. You didn't violate his character in the way you did your work. 
Well done. Good. Not only that, you were always faithful to the laws and the ways established by God. You are faithful. Servant. You always recognize who you were. You were a servant of God. A servant unto God. You were not serving self. You are not serving self. Why is this distinction so important? Is because there are plenty of successful people in the world, but they are not servants of God. Because the first thing, I told you last Sunday also, the first thing a servant of God will understand, everything that he has in life, he holds it in stewardship to God as a man, as a woman, who will have to give one day account. Every pie I own, everything that I own belongs to him, given to me for a season. One day I will have to give accounts. He's a servant. He's a servant. There are successful people in the world, but they are not servants because they say, I worked, I earned, I'm going to do it with whatever I please. Are they successful? Yes. Are they? Did they do their work well? Yes. Are they faithful? Yes. Are they servants? No. They're serving self. They're not serving God. We don't serve self. We serve God. We serve God. We serve God. That's why I have issue. I'm not talking to Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists. That's not my job. My job is to talk to believers. That's my call. Strengthen believers. That's my issue with Christian televangelists when they live in 20 million dollar estates. I deserve it. Deserve it? Deserve? Deserve? You have to ask these questions, children. You have to understand what is the meaning of life. Otherwise, you will become very successful and then at the top find you are so empty. So empty. All you feel, life is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Like Solomon said, reach the top, explode every avenue. At the end of it, found it is meaningless. Why? Because he served himself and not God in his success. Don't go that route. That's why all these stories are written there in the Bible. So that we will understand meaning of life is never found apart from God. Apart from God. That's what God is telling. Work hard. Work hard. Things, good things in life should come through hard work. There is a time period for it. There is a time period for it. Nothing comes too fast. Because the characteristic of a child is the inability to wait. So God says, put away childish things. What's the first child? I want it now. I want it now. Instant gratification. And the world is tuned to it. Doesn't matter whether you have no money. Don't worry. We will give you a loan. Just come. Take a CC. Finish that. Take another CC to cover this credit card. Keep on. So the most prosperous nation ever in human history is the most debtor nation in human history. Why? Why? Because it is built on one principle, instant gratification. You don't have to wait for tomorrow what you can have today on money which you haven't earned. Instant gratification. Childish thing. Scripture is very clear. Be debtor to no man. I have no man anything except the debt of love. 
That's fundamentally why for 10 years consistently we have told, when you put your money in this, let your name be not on it. I do not want to know who gives. Because the pulpit will never be tainted by money. Because you cannot serve God and mammon. And to give in secret is an incredible challenge because you have to diet yourself to give in secret because to give in public there is something the self gets. I gave. It's over. My responsibility is over. God says no. It's not over. Instant gratification. That is the nature of a child. The problem with instant gratification is instant gratification builds low character. Low character. Low character. And we as parents, talking to, we as parents are responsible for destroying our own children. Give me a phone. What phone do you want? iPhone? Give me this thing. What dress you want? Okay, I will take it. I'm taking it to Jubilee Hills. Did you work for it? Do you know how to value things? Did we ever teach our children the value of things, not that things in its value, the work and the sacrifice that went into it has value. I make it an iPhone. But for this iPhone to reach my hands, there are employees who are basically slaves in Chinese factories working for 20 hours in a stretch and goes home once a year. That's why all the American companies are in China and not in America because that's slave labor. So, this did come free. Though somebody gave it to me free. It was made and bought with the blood, tears and lives of innocent people. Barack Obama, not that I hold him in any respect, once said something very true. He said, in one cruise, cruise, you know, ocean cruise, more food is thrown out and overboard that is enough to feed one of the cities of America. The poor in one of the cities of the third world. Do we understand? Are we violating the character of God? Do we understand this God? Do we have any knowledge of this nature of this God? Because instant gratification leads to very low character. Like I keep saying the old rhyme. Gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy. Problem is, we don't value anything. And we apply the same principle on other things of value. Because we got instant gratification for ice cream, to clothes, to phones, to gadgets, later we'll apply the same principle to sex, to integrity in the workplace, to honesty, all these things which are of incredible value in the kingdom of God. We apply the same principle because we taught them the same principle with things. Principles under 
underlying principles are the same. If I can have a 50,000 rupees iPhone without working for here, you're 15 years old, take it. Then why should I stop for sex? Both is on the condition of pleasure, right? Not functionality. Functionality, you just need an ordinary phone. Based on the same principle. That's why a generation is dying. The most informed generation, the most blessed generation, dying opioid crisis around the world. Not just in the US, in Hyderabad. Why is everybody on drugs? Because of the principle of pleasure over character. And you will say, I don't do drugs. Do you do shopping? It's the same principle. The same principle. Unrestricted shopping. Unrestricted um, fascination with food. Unrestricted fascination with sports. Unrestricted fascination with all these kinds of things. Because the underlying principle is the same. It is the principle of pleasure. Listen to Revisac's message some long time back on pleasure. And read C.S. Lewis if I'm right on mere Christianity. Destroys us. So scripture says his own son prayed and he learned through suffering. Couldn't father answer him? My son prayed. Five angels, go there, take him, carry him around. Don't let his foot hurt. Let Don't trouble him at all. Let him have a full meal every day. Let him have the best bed in the universe. No, he slept out in the dark, in the night. He didn't have a place to sleep most of the time. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has no place. Why? Because father was building his character in his son when he came in the flesh, not to elevate anything else. Learn from the heavenly father, because the whole family on earth gets its name from him. That's how the father taught his own son. Understand, young children, understand, everything you and I get may be free. May be free. May be free. But it is not free. It is not free. It is not free. I remember one thing my father told me. My mother too. One thing my father told me, Verity. You are five. You're all doing very well in classes, education and everything. We have very limited money. We'll try to give, I can give you the best education possible because he always thought and his knowledge is power. But he said one thing. Never ever ask me to come to a college and bow before a principal for admission for you. I will not do it. None of us ever made him do it. Never. He said, never ever make me do it. I'll do everything I can give you which within my means. Study hard, work hard, go up. But don't let me come and say, please, management quota, one seat, one seat. No. Every time in my life, you want to check when I started, you go back and see it is up there, up there, up there, up there because that one word. And I didn't know God. One word. One word. I knew one thing. It was this language of English. Class 10, first in the state. Class 12, first in the district. BA, first. MA, top in the college. And when I came to IFLU and wrote the entrance exam, top in all those who came from India and wrote. Because one thing, I will not ask my father. Please, put your hands together. Because it doesn't come free. All our successes built on the sacrifice of somebody else. 
Don't take it for granted. Learn to value things that are valuable in life. And learn to value it so that you don't throw it away for instant gratification. That's animals. That's what the world, the Antichrist and his system wants to make animals of people. Because if you look at animals, they live on the principle of instant gratification. What? Have you noticed? Does a dog wait for his dinner? No. Does a dog wait for sex? No. Does a dog wait for anything? No. But what is the difference between a dog and a modern man? The modern man can think. So he's not interested in sex. He's interested in every perversion of sex, which the dog is not interested in. Because he does not have the reasoning ability. The dog is not looking for a cuisine. He's looking for food. While the man is, is not satisfied with food anymore. He has his palate has to be tickled daily. But we have become what? We have become slaves. Slaves. Get these principles early in life. Like Daniel. Things will come, dispensations will come, nations will come and change. You, like Daniel, should be able to stand if the Lord tarries to come till the very end. Because what you believed was the truth. And the truth always sets you free. It doesn't bind you. It sets you free. It sets you free. Are you getting the principle, children? Put away childish things. Put away childish things. Can only put away childish things when we have a mature understanding of life. And then you put your foot down and you stand there. See, as long as you're flowing downstream, everybody is with you. But if you want to swim upstream, suddenly you realize, company the wood. Life with God. Swimming upstream. Second childistic thing, let me tell you. Understand terms we are using, okay? Acceptance versus approval. Acceptance versus approval. So many of us, or all of us, have grown up for a long season, maybe still confused between these two. Approval and acceptance. Approval means, for many people, I am loved and accepted. Disapproval means, for many people or most people, I am not loved and rejected. But that is not true. That's an absolute false view of God. God loves me. I am, you are all acceptable to God. But he rejects our behavior when it contradicts his nature. So even when we walk in sin, he loves us. But he rejects our behavior. And if our behavior does not change, then sadly we will have no eternal place in his holy presence. Not only that, we will be absolutely uncomfortable in his presence. There is this vision, this great Indian Christian mystic Sadhu Sundar Singh sees of heaven. In his visions he says, he says, the portals of heaven were open. And it was not closed. 
And sinners when they die are coming and fleeing from heaven. Unable to stand the glory, the light and the purity and the holiness of God. They wanted to hide in hell. They didn't want to go to heaven. Do you see that? Incredible vision he saw. God says, if you walk in sin, you wouldn't want to be in heaven. Because you have no clue what heaven is like. Because heaven is, or I use a wrong term, contaminated by his holy nature. Right? I like an illustration which I told you, an old Malayali pastor said, said, take a, take a cat and a pig. Give them both a nice wash, put kotikora powder and all on it, and take them both down, and suddenly it is raining. And it's all mud and splash. If you let go, the mud is there, the pig will jump into the mud and wallow in the mud, while the cat will go on to high place. Why? Didn't both get a bath? Didn't both get cleaned up? But their nature inside is different. Nature inside is different. The pig goes for the dirt because that's the nature of the pig. The cat is always cleaning itself because it is. That's his nature. It knows cannot escape the dirt, but he comes back and cleans itself all the time. That is exactly what differentiates a believer and an unbeliever. The believer also knows he's living in a dirty, filthy, corrupt, polluted world and you cannot escape it. When he comes back, he's forever cleaning himself. Well, the other fellow indulges in it. No regret, nothing. Whatever nature of that filth may be. That's the difference. Why? Your nature inside has been changed. God has come inside to live in and is changing you from inside out. That's how you know whether you are saved or not. Not the set of principles you believe in. You know whether you are saved or not. So we have this incredible misunderstanding of approval and acceptance. God accepts us. But he will only approve behavior that tallies with his nature. Therefore, Jesus could walk with deep compassion among publicans, the tax collectors, the most hated group 2000 years ago in Israel. The tax collectors, the sinners, the gluttons, the drunkards, Thieves and harlots. That's the company that followed him usually. And he had no problems. Yet, never did he lower God's standard once for anybody. So that they might think he was approving of their behavior. Do you see the difference? He accepted all of them. All of them he accepted. He said, come, my father loves you. But he never approved of any behavior of any one of them when it contradicted his father's nature. Therefore he will go to get a Samaritan woman accepted into the beloved. But will tell her, five husbands you had, you are living with the sixth one. Behavior, unacceptable. Behavior, you are accepted. Behavior, not accepted. Modern terms, that's what he told the IRS official, Mr. Zacchaeus. I will come to your house. 
No Pharisee will come to your house. I will come to your house. I have no problems. I will come to your house and I will eat in your house. But once you realize your behavior is wrong and you correct it, you will realize you are approved. Salvation has come into this house today. Even the woman caught in adultery. Everybody is left. That's a stunning display for me. Everybody is left. He said, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now don't try those things these days. A lot of people say, whoever is without sin, there may be a man who is walking blameless before God. He may take a stone and give you one. <laughs> so a lot of people, not they are without sin, they are blameless. They are blameless. With before God. Okay, because people use this scripture without understanding what it means. Everybody left. Everybody left. But the woman did not leave. It's a stunning part. Because Jesus has no legal authority in Israel when he comes in the flesh. He's just a rabbi. Rabbis don't have authority. He's not part of the Sanhedrin. He's not part of the legal system. He's not a part of the Roman system. She could have walked away. She could have walked away. And that's what most people do when they're caught in sin. They walk away from the very presence of the one who can save you. She didn't go. She stood there. She stood there. And he looked at her and said, Is there no one who condemns you? She said, I also don't condemn you. Go sin no more. You are accepted. Your behavior is not approved. Behavior is not approved. So many people are confused between these two. That's what we see in John chapter 8 and verse 11, what Jesus said. You see the acceptance and the approval part. Richie, be ready with the next one, always. Okay, we save time. No one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. You are accepted. Don't. You want approval. Change your life. Acceptance and approval are not the same. So there is loving acceptance. And what we call in theology, redemptive disapproval. Personal compassion and a moral challenge. And the distinctions are not a blurred. It's no blurring of distinctions. I do not condemn you. Why? My first coming, I have not come to condemn. But if you do not want to be condemned in the second time, sin no more. Walk, overcome. I come to redeem. I have come to save. I have come to put you right. Overcome sin and walk. Change your direction. That's what happened to the man at the pool of Bethsheda too. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Stop making excuses. Do you want to get well? John chapter 5 will show you that man is lying there. How many years? 38 years infirmity. Said, do you want to be made well? He made all the excuses. He said, pick up your mat and walk. Go. You're accepted. You're accepted. I understand. Bichare. Utho, chalo. Chalo. Go. What does verse 14 say? Next portion. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more. You want approval of God to continue in your healing, to continue walking? Do not sin again. Don't walk in that sin. You will be a mess at the end. Many of us are still confused between these two acceptance 
and approval. What do I want to tell you connected with that tonight, today? Listen carefully, young children. God does not wait to love us and accept us until He can approve everything about us. If He did, we would be hopelessly lost. He loved us when we didn't know Him. He loved us when we were sinners. He loved us when we were His enemies. He loved us when we were powerless. But He approves of us when we start walking in obedience. We are accepted. We are accepted. In Ephesians 1.6 in KJV, if I am right, Scripture says, to the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He has made us accepted. We are accepted. Not yet approved. Approval is that day. As you continue to walk. Jesus always knew his father loved him. But he was not walking and working for his father's love, which most of us do, sadly. Working for the father's love, which we don't have to do. He loved us when we were sinners. How can he love less now that we are his children? Just think logically. Think for a logic. I mean, you use logic, right? The Think logically. When he loved you and me when we were sinners, how can he love us less now that we are children? Right? Approval. It's another thing. Because if if you are working for his love, he'll be very tired. We don't work for his love. We work for his approval. So at the age of 30, when Jesus never ever doubted his father's love, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Approved. 30 years of secular hidden life. Approved. See Lagadia. Then in the ministry, end of the ministry, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Approved. He never had to struggle for love like we do. Never, never, never. Put away that childish thing. If you were brought up that way, that is not what God is. That is not what God is, because so many parents put this together. Love and approval. Acceptance and approval. If you fail in the exam, go away. Don't come near me. What's that got to do with love? You are not just, you reject the person's performance. You always accept the person. That's why when I counsel parents and others that when you discipline a child, you say, Rod. Okay? Scripture, not government. Scripture. I'm putting scripture above government. But those who are in government, licensed homes, stick to government and not scripture. My home is not licensed by the Government is licensed by God. Okay? So the difference. I always tell parents, have one stick for discipline. One stick. Not every stick in the house. One stick. Don't use this. Don't. Use your hand to hold the stick. Hands are for loving. Rod is for discipline. Let the child always know the hands of the father, like our heavenly father, is open for you to come home, not to punish him. 
Because scripture says in the book of Isaiah, all day long, O Israel, I stood with my outstretched arms for you. Yet he used the rod of discipline to correct his beloved son Israel. He sent the Babylonians, he sent the Medes, he sent the Persians, he sent them all as his rod to punish them. But his hands were always outstretched towards his children. Don't confuse acceptance and approval. Don't confuse. Because a lot of people bring that into their relationship with God and are struggling and working everything to get the love of God. God says, honey, you don't have to do one thing. I have loved you with an everlasting love and because I am love, the totality of love, I cannot love you a little more. I love you with a perfect love. You getting the picture? Acceptance and approval. Put away childish things. One, one more childish thing, let's say we have time to put away. I'm not going to let you off before 12, don't worry. And if I'm right, we have also a very heavy snack today. It will be almost equal to lunch, okay? I'm not letting you the secret of the menu, which I know, but I'm not letting it out, okay? So, relax. Let's look at one or more, as the time permits, childish things. I want you to listen carefully, young children and young parents. Listen carefully. We need to know the difference between hurt and harm. Repeat after me. Hurt and harm. Know the difference. Sometimes the difference is blurred. It is impossible for a child, little child, to understand this difference. Whatever the circumstances or the motive behind it, anything that causes pain to a child is seen as a hurt. It could be deliberate. Or accidental. Doesn't make any difference to a child. Therefore it cries. But when we grow up, we should see the difference. Often it doesn't happen in real life. Sadly, because of the fallen nature of man, hurt and harm comes together because of the fallen man. Hurt and harm. A fallen man is an abuser. It's under the control of passions over which he has no control. Alcohol, anger, so many. So, he not only hurts, he also harms. God doesn't harm. Get this very clearly. God doesn't harm. He only hurts. He doesn't harm. He doesn't harm. When we use words, our, because we have no control and we have no consciousness of our own passions, we use words that are not only hurt, but also harm. Job was so careful about the words he used in terrible circumstances that he only caused hurt and not harm. Hurt is what you get when you are punished for a behavior. Harm is caused because you connect the behavior and the person as one and you harm the person sometimes irreparably unless that person meets God. When Job's wife says, curse God and die, looks at her and says, you are talking like a foolish woman. 
What would we say Indian? Tu buddhu, tera maa bhi buddhu. Tera pura khandan buddhu. That's what we say. That's what we say. Now, we didn't hurt a person to correct the behavior because the behavior is already forgotten because of the words we use. We have caused harm. Caused harm. That's where we need a lot of growing up. Because people have grown up where these two distinctions were not there. They were very blurred. Blurred. In Hebrews chapter 12, 6 and 7. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Very painful. Very painful discipline. If you are not being disciplined by God, I am telling you, go back home and cross check your salvation. The surest sign of salvation is God is disciplining. God is disciplining. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What does it mean? Endure chastening means as he's disciplining you, don't run away from it, work, walk with it, learn from it, so you will continue to grow as sons and know him continuously as a father. Don't run away from the discipline of God. Don't fight the discipline of God. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In verse 10, scripture says, for 10, 10, Hebrews 12, 10. For they indeed for a few days, that's our earthly fathers, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Our fathers chastened us for a few days, few years, then let go. God doesn't. Because there is a limit to the understanding of righteousness or whatever of a father on earth. But there is no limit, Mahendra, no limit to what God wants. It's his holiness. Even in the book of Revelation to the most lukewarm church, this is what God says in Revelation 3. As money as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. He says, I'm hurting you. But I'm not rejecting you as a person. I'm hurting you, yes. Why? Because your behavior is not acceptable as a son or as a daughter. God will hurt us. I'm not saying may. He will hurt us. But he will never harm us. And God is not afraid to hurt us. And he will hurt us. So that we will learn in life his character and grow in it. But his hurt is always to heal and to help us and not to harm us. But because people have grown up starved of acceptance and love, and in homes where there was no distinction between hurt and harm, they become very insecure adults and parents. Actually, they become terrible parents. So they cause not only hurt, they also cause harm. That's why you hear the terrible cases of abuse that is happening. That's not discipline. Not just spanking a child using red hot iron and pans and pots and whatever you lay your hands off. They go crazy. And the verbal abuse. 
The two kinds of abuse, which is absolute no-no. One is the physical abuse, it's a no-no. And the other is the verbal abuse. The verbal abuse is worse. Verbal abuse is worse. I may not touch the pig at all, but I can destroy her with words. By saying you're good for nothing. You will never amount to anything. Or just like this, this, this. If I say, the child is finished. Her parents said it. Her father said it. Her pastor said it. She's finished. That's the worst form of abuse. Verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. God doesn't verbally abuse us. Doesn't. He will always show us our behavior and say, your behavior is like this. Even when he calls Jacob a worm, he says, you're helpless, Jacob, I can help you out. He's not telling him you're a worm. Jacob, you're a worm. Or the danger. The other second danger. One is the hurt and the harm we cause. The second, because they come up as very insecure adults from insecure childhood, what happens when they become parents and when you become a parent, what do you want? You want the approval of your children. Who? What do you want? You want the approval of the children, so you refuse to hurt them. So who is the pet the daddy, the best daddy in the world who never disciplines you? Who never? That's the other extreme. So if you have a split home, where you have a parent who is trying to discipline, and the other one who is vying for the approval of the children, the one who is vying for the children automatically becomes the best parent, because flesh always flows there. That's why I always say, I'm very, very clear about counseling. I say the best thing for a child is two godly parents. The second best thing for a child is a single parent who is godly and not two. Because you destroy the child because his heart is, or her heart, or the child's heart is divided because all they see is contradictions. Contradictions. Because the whole purpose of God and the ministry of God is to make us one single whole like him. So understand the difference between hurt and harm. We hurt because disciplining hurts. Physical discipline. If it's a child or other things, when you take away things from children or say you are grounded, those things hurt. But they are not meant to harm. They are not meant to harm. But sometimes we forget the person and we hurt them deliberately to harm them. Or we are so guilt-ridden that we forget to hurt them so that they grow up and become incorrigible rebels. And both are because of insecure adults. You want to know? The finest, one of the finest men of God and one of the weakest parents in the Bible in First Kings chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I'll be king. When did he say I'll be king? When his father is king. Do you remember the prodigal son? I'll be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time. Father had never rebuked him? Father never hurt him. Because he was always guilt-ridden. Pick this one, pick that one, pick that. This is so many wives, so many children, then messed up with Bathsheba. So, how can I discipline my children? Let me not. I need their approval. Don't hurt them. 
Finally, at the end, he will cry, Absalom, Absalom, I wish I had died in your place. He didn't have to die. You just had to spank those boys a little. When they were growing up, they all would have been fine. But you wanted their approval. Therefore, you didn't want to hurt them. And in the process, you really harmed them in the long run. In the long run. And I'm telling you straight from the pulpit. Look at my eyes, children. I do not want your approval. I will hurt you. As long as you stay here in the church, the word of God is going to hurt you until your behavior changes. And if your behavior changes, it doesn't matter how tough the word it is, it won't hurt you. Whomever the son God loves, he chases. Don't understand. Not to harm, but to discipline. Let me, I, I, I read about an illustration about a doctor talking about it. It's an illustration which I'm using here, okay? Uh, his son had a club foot, you know, club foot, and they said, the doctor told a long time back, the doctor said, this has to be treated, it's a very painful thing, in the first 48 hours, you have to have the surgery, otherwise if it is late, it becomes more problematic, the surgery is over, it's a small child, and he said, for these many days, the foot is in a cast, you have to turn the foot Every time for so many times a day. He said it was horror for the father. The mother is holding the little child. The father is turning. The child is howling, screaming, tears, screaming. I hate you, daddy. I hate you, daddy. I hate you, daddy. And the father saying the words is breaking my heart. But every day he's still doing it. Question is, was he hurting or was he harming? He said a few years later, when I saw my son playing baseball, he realized my father didn't harm me. He was only hurting me so that one day I could walk normally. Our father in heaven doesn't harm us. He hurts us so that we can walk normally one day with him. Understand the purpose of discipline. Understand the purpose of discipline. That's why, because as a classroom teacher, and I always ask ex-students when I meet them after many years, hey, come here. How many teachers do you remember from your school days? Yeah, two names. Which are the ones you remember? The ones who were tough. So, right, that's the way it works. Ultimately, the ones who disciplined you are the ones who did not cause harm to you. The ones who did not discipline you not only created no hurt, they harmed you irreparably. God is a father. He will hurt you, but he will not harm us. That's what scripture says. What we need to know about God. That's what Hebrews 12 and verse 11 says. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Tell a little child who is getting spanked, ask me. Got a full bucket full all my days I grew up. Painful. Ask a young teenager, I'm taking your iPhone, I'm taking the keys, you're not going out for 30 days. It's painful. He will ask his father, what's up? He says, that's exactly what's up is off. Painful. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Not necessarily to always, to all who are disciplined, but who have been trained 
by it. Discipline itself doesn't change anybody. You should be willing to be trained by it. God disciplined that entire nation of Israel. Only a remnant came out. Only a remnant? Entire nation of Israel was disciplined by God. Only a remnant came out. An entire clan of princes of Judah was taken out of Babylon as God's act of discipline. Only four stood up. So please don't think there is some virtue in discipline. No. We still have the freedom, as I said in the beginning, the sacrosanct freedom given by God to choose to turn right because of discipline. I can be disciplined and I can get beaten up black and blue and I can still choose to go the other way. God hasn't suffered my free will even there. I choose. We have to be trained by it. Yield a fruit of righteousness, not only in this life, in the life to come. So I want to keep this in the back of your mind, top of your mind, wherever you want to keep it. If you wear these things and all which young people do, write these things and write, he will never harm me, but he will hurt me. These are things. What does this mean? Give them a sermon. Because everybody, Jesus loves me. If you look at the cross and you still need an anklet to say that Jesus loves you, you haven't understood redemption. Right? My father disciplines me because I am a son. Write that. Because that's what the world doesn't want to know or hear. Write new things in your blogs. Mahinder in the blog. Yes, you're nodding off. So shall we put away one more childish thing? Or you want to hold on to that? James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Test, trials, temptation. Three different words used in different terms. Okay. All three are valid. Consider it pure joy. All joy. Nobody considers it joy when you are tempted, tried, tested. How many of you had breakfast today? When you were, let's, let's imagine you were toasting your bread in the pan or making an omelette. When you put the pan on the fire, did you say the pan say, Hallelujah. Really, we hear all this as scripture, but do you consider this as joy when you are tested and tried or tempted? But scripture says, count it. And verse 12, it says, it is blessed if you endure trials. If you endure, 112 will say, if you endure, if you come through. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Because when he has been not accepted. And he has been approved. You want God's approval? God says, I want to test you. I want to try you. I'm going to allow temptations to come into your life. I'm going to allow all these things because what's the reason? I want to approve of you. But our problem is we want to be approved without a single examination. Knowing very well it doesn't work in this world, but you want it to work in the kingdom of God. There is no single person on earth, living or dead, spirit-filled or saintly, 
who will never face temptation of some kind till the hour he dies even when he is dying he faces temptation like theologian says jesus greatest temptation was on the cross because so many spiritual people believe you can live about temptation that you can never face temptation again which is not true you will be tempted you will be tried you will be tested that's why the history of israel is given to us very clearly has examples has personal history israel in egypt represents our slavery to sin the passover lamb shows our redemption from the penalty of sin the red sea shows of our salvation our deliverance and 40 years in the desert shows about a self-focused carnal christian who is defeated in sin and therefore is totally discouraged and depressed at jordan it shows a surrender of self and canaan the promised land talks about spirit filled life that is in the book of joshua but let me ask you this question if you read the book of joshua what was the primary occupation of the people who entered into the promised land fight what did they do in the promised land in the book of joshua fight when you get saved what are you called to fight and possess the life god has given it's warfare from the beginning till the end what are you fighting every temptation every trial every test so that you can be approved there is no escaping this absolutely no escaping this what does it mean it means that every level we will face temptation that's the enemy of our soul because we are free moral agents created in the image of god our power of choice is never taken away will think that in heaven is my power of choice taken away no child it is not taken away the only different there is no sin there is no flesh there is no satan so there is no temptation but power of choice is never taken away but there is no temptation but there is no flesh there is no sin there is no devil and his cohorts oswald chambers said this god can give us pure hearts in one instant but character in a lifetime because it's a long daily battle in the right direction and it is full of choices temptation trials or testing is the proving ground of those choices our choices are tested when there is temptation imagine if genesis chapter 2 it is written every tree in this garden i give it to you you can eat what is the temptation what is the choice no every tree you can eat except that one there is a choice therefore there is a temptation where there are no choices there are no temptations so god has given us choice the freedom to choose and he says there will be tests trials and temptations every day and that's how you and i get approved but what i want to tell today is the distinction between sin and temptation jesus was tempted at all points but he did not so temptation is not sin lot of people walk under condemnation because they have been tempted though they have been sinned condemnation 
Everybody is tempted. Even the greatest saint is tempted. Temptation is not equal to sin. Put away that childish idea. Temptation is sin. Temptation is to make us sin. But temptation is not equal to sin. What is temptation? It is the pressure to choose between two choices. Two choices. Look at James chapter 1 verses 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He allows temptation to come in through other means, but he never tempts. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire. This is a much better translation in this term desire, because KJ will use the term lust, which is very narrow now. By his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Keep that in your mind, okay? Keep that. You know this portion well, but let's look at it in detail. So there is lust or desire in me and temptation outside. What is outside? Temptation, trial, test outside, desire in me. Now this uses a term. We know for conception, two people have to come together. A male seed, the female seed, have to come together for conception. It gives birth to a child. That's the same illustration that is used. There is a desire in me. There is temptation outside of me. When they come together, it will conceive. It will conceive. Takes two to conceive. Temptation itself cannot conceive. Desire in itself cannot conceive. And most of our desires in our self are God-given. But the satanic trap is to misuse it, to abuse it, or pervert it. What is that can keep this separate? Desire and temptation. What is that can keep it separate? It's not a very theological question. It's a very simple question. What can keep desire and temptation separate? Your will. You choose. You choose. Is it written in the Bible? Satan came as a serpent and he twined around Eve's hand and pushed her hand to pluck the fruit and opened her mouth and nothing like that. God will not allow that. Never. And whenever things like that have happened, you are absolutely innocent. You are guiltless before God. When women have been drugged and raped and all, you are absolutely innocent. The only question God will ask you, why are you in the place where you got drugged? It's the only question. Not the what happened afterwards. What is that can keep this separate is my will. It's my will. The whole idea of the devil is to use a temptation to get into a desire which almost always is God-given and perverted. Imagine today me as a farmer, okay? Can you imagine? Once upon a time I loved farming when I was small, so you can imagine, okay? Here am I working hard in my farm. This is a wall and across is another farm and I'm working, working, working and it's evening and I'm very tired and I'm very hungry. 
Then I look. Boy, look at that apples. They look red, not Chinese apples, okay? Red, delicious. Delicious. My mouth is watering. Is the desire natural? Okay. Apple is there. Desire, temptation, mouth is watering. I'm about to pluck when I see the branch is coming from across the wall. It's not my apple. What do I do? Very simple illustration. But a real fact of life we face every day. Very simple illustration. I have two choices. I'm hungry. My mouth is watering. All this is natural. But that's not mine. That's not mine. In some cases, because it's a simple thing, if my neighbor happens to be there, I can say, Hey Tom, how are you doing? I'm hungry. Can I take an apple? He says, go ahead. But what happens if the apple happens to be his wife? Principle is the same. You getting the picture? Temptation? Desire. In between stands my will. My will has to be activated by the knowledge of the Holy One before whom everyone will one day stand and give an account for everything we have done. It's our simple it is. Like I said, I have three choices. Either say no, ask my neighbor, or steal. But in most cases in life, we have only two choices. Either it is no, or yes. Like I said, now transfer this temptation to sex or pleasure to things or even desire for recognition. Desire for recognition. That is why the tenth commandment. You know what the tenth commandment is? Exodus 20 and verse 17. Thou shall not covet. What doesn't belong to you? Thou shall not covet. Nothing. You don't even want to be like somebody else. That Even that is coveting. You just have to be what God wants you to be. Look at the good of other people. Imitate that good. But don't try to be somebody else. Because each one has been made unique. Absolutely unique. When you're formed fearfully and wonderfully in your mother's womb, if I'm right, my medical science is right, doctors are here, gynecs are also here. I think by the time you're six weeks or seven weeks, you have a unique fingerprint which can never be replicated. You are a unique individual by your fingerprint alone. That government says you are not a person. Are you getting it? Thou shall not. I use my will. You use our will. But to use my will to make choices, I need knowledge. The knowledge of the Holy One, not information about the apple. Usually when we talk about information, knowledge, we don't mean knowledge of God. We mean, you know what? I saw that wall and I saw two apple trees and I saw this was red and this was golden. I like golden apples, so I stole this. We have information. We have no knowledge of the Holy One. It's like Mark Twain. 
Mark Twain says, as a young man, I was walking in the, in the, in the, in the marketplace and there were these ladies selling apples in that, in that trolley. And he said, I was, I saw she was looking the other side. I took an apple and I bit it. And he says, a strange feeling came over me. I quietly put the apple back and took a ripe one. Is that knowledge of the holy one? It is information that the apple I took is raw and there are ripe ones there. Are you getting it? That's what Bible is saying about thou shall not covet. I need the gift of the Holy Spirit which is called the gift of self-control. That's what Galatians 5 talks about, the fruit of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. Lord, help me to be able to say no, yes, no, 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 yes, no. Life will be mostly no. Am I right, parents, young parents? When your children are growing up, you say more yes or more no. No, 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 no. Finally, child also grows up and says no. They also know when you are doing what you told them not to do, they will say no. Self-control. In First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. Do you know the history of the old Christian nations like US and England and all? In the old days, they used to have Yearly conventions, meetings, which were called temperance meetings. Teaching people to be temperate in all things. Temperance means to have self-control in all things because we are running for a crown. So I said, if Jyoti or Peter or anybody decides to join for next year's marathon in Hyderabad, 20k run, whatever, immediately they become temperate. They start practicing jogging, 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 jogging. What I've said is that, you know, I told the pastor's conference, I said, the ribbon you wear on your head, how much does it cost? Two rupees? For a colored ribbon for two, which costs two rupees to Get it from the hand of a dignitary. People are willing to give anything off. That's the price of that ribbon for which you are being temperate. But God says, I'm giving you an imperishable crown. What is talking about perishable and imperishable? He's using it from the culture of the Romans and the Greeks. When they ran and they practiced and they were strict and they got, they got a laurel of leaves which you took home two days later, it starts drying and going off. And he says for that, men are being temperate, practicing, disciplining for years together for that perishing crown. Here God is offering an imperishable crown. Nobody's interested. Temptation and sin are not the same. But they can become the same when we do not exercise Self-control. That's what we see in Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. To be tempted is not to be sinful. Than your mouth watering at the sight of the apple. The question is what will you do with the evil suggestion? What to do with that temptation? It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Keep it there. He's up there. He goes to the roof. He's sleepless because he's not doing what he was supposed to do. That's when people fall into trouble when they are not doing what they are doing and they are in a place where they should not be. Simple lesson. Then he's sleepless. He looks at the woman. She's Immediately, like you're seeing the apple, desire comes, temptation is there, mouth is watering, but what happens in the third verse? Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. That's where the problem comes. Temptation is not sin. But when we start dwelling on the temptation and start inquiring about it, how can I have it without harming myself? How can I have it this without anybody knowing? We start making inquiries about that temptation. Now we are making a choice in our will to towards evil and not towards good. That's where the problem comes. Evil suggestion. What are you going to do with it? You are all this thing angry with somebody on this thing. Next time I see something, I am going to give it to her, give it to her. You are meditating, meditating, meditating. Next time you give, see, you will give it. The problem is not the suggestion. The problem is your inquiring of that suggestion in your head. That is where the temptation and the desire has come. And they are starting the act of conception. It's starting the beginning of birth of sin. Sin hasn't conceived yet, but it started on that journey. At that will, you could go either this way or that way. This way is, oh my gosh, that somebody else's wife walked away. Or, so you already put a step on this side. And I said, that's it. They said, bring her. Because you are king. You know what we, why we don't say bring her to every woman we see? It's because we don't have the power. We are not kings. That's why I said time is coming. Sons of God and daughters of God will be kings and queens who will have power. And he says, you better be sure you have the character to handle power. Otherwise, like David, you will say, bring her, bring him. When you rule earth. That's our issue. So don't ask God to take away your desires. Those are God-given desires. Say, God, help me to have control and to be temperate and have the knowledge of the Holy One so that I know how to channel these desires in such a way that I am able to honor you in my body, in my soul, in my spirit. Because a young man came and prayed to a seminary professor, pastor, I have been praying to take this desire away. I am always tempted with sexual desires. He said, young man, God had to answer your prayer and take the desire away completely. Five years from now, when you get married, what will you do? His wife will think, <laughs> He has no desire. And he's walking around saying, I am married, but I have no desire. Because I remember five years ago, I asked God to take that desire away. No, that is God-given desire. All these desires are God-given. But God says, exercise control. Exercise control. What does the devil do? He wants us to tempt us, putting the principle of pleasure and gratification 
above everything else. And in the end, what do we become? We become addicts. Slaves. It's an old term, new term, understandable term is we become what? Addicts. So, so many people are addicts. People say, no, I don't do drugs. I don't drink. Maybe you are addicted to something else. The only addiction that is acceptable in the kingdom of God is if you are addicted to God. Because he sets you free to do everything else. That's what I said. Some of the things we take pleasure in may not look evil at all outside. But what is evil? Anything that takes you and I away from God. Anything that replaces God, the creator, in the heart of his creation is evil. Sooner or later, we will start worshipping those things. Because we were created to find our ultimate pleasure in God, through God, for God. And our choices will determine our destiny. To make the right choices, I need not just information, not just knowledge, I need the right knowledge, the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God is revealed through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now that I have knowledge and I have my will, but I am still weak. Still weak. I have the knowledge and I have the weak will. But I had no Lord over the years before I knew and after I knew I used my will to do evil. My will is weak. So Lord, God says, I give you power. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. When you receive power, scripture says, what happens? You will be my witnesses, not preachers, my witnesses. We have knowledge, we have will, we have desires, we have power. And God says, you are my witness because you can make right choices, able to say no, 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 and walk away and be able to walk with God. Because to walk with God, you may have to walk away from a lot of things and a lot of people in life. And we need strength for that. That's the strength that the Holy Spirit gives. An entirety of the Bible is about choices. From Genesis chapter 2 to Revelation 22, it's about choices. Even when Revelation 22, the Bible is closed, the canon is closed, the last cry of the Holy Spirit and the redeemed bride is, all who are thirsty, come and... That's also a choice. All God will say is, come... Water is there, drink. But I have to choose. Nasaklos, the greatest testimony of the power of choice which God has given man is seen in Luke chapter 23 and verses 39 to 43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Three people. Same situation. If you look from outside. Jesus in the middle. One thief on the right, one thief on the left, all crucified, all ringing in agony and the pain. All. This is probably the greatest encounter. Which will clearly tell you the crux of today's message. 
the freedom to choose. The two people. Everybody is choosing there. Two of them are choosing. One is cursing Jesus. The other one says, hey, hang on. Hang a minute. Hanging over there. Words, words away from death in pain. Don't you have any fear of God? Don't you have any fear of God? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Don't you? So he had a fear of God. What did he have? And even in the last moment, in the most excruciating circumstances, because he has the fear of God, his eyes is opening. And he accepts the righteous judgment of God and he says, he did no wrong, we did wrong, he deserves to be free, we deserve to be condemned. He understands the righteousness of God. He is not shaking his fist at heaven. Understands the righteousness of God. And then he is also able to look at the man in the middle and realizes, this man... It's no ordinary man. He's a king with a kingdom. And he says, Lord Jesus, I also see you can redeem me. There is forgiveness in your kingdom. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise today. How do we make our choices? How do we make our choices? Did God bend this man's will? Did God bend this man's will? No, but he did everything possible, even at the last moment of death, to get them both into heaven. One responded, the other didn't. That's what God does with all of us. Every one of us. He does everything possible to make us respond to his love and his righteousness and his holiness saying for your sin, my son had to die because that's who I am. Righteousness will not be bent. Holiness now will be not. Receive a free pardon. Enter into the kingdom and walk in righteousness. You will receive a rich entry into the kingdom of God the day you die. Rich welcome. Is the gospel complicated? It's not. Put away childish things. Put away childish things. Don't confuse these things. Because because we have all this confusion between harm and hurt, we refuse the hurt of God, the discipline of God. Because we confuse between approval and acceptance, we are fighting for acceptance when we are already accepted and when nobody is bothered of approval, when we should be warring the devil and temptation and the flesh for the approval of God. Completely confused. That's why the message today is put away childish things. Start maturing in your faith and remember ultimately every choice you and I make will have eternal consequences unless we repent of the wrong choices and turn away. The consequences are not temporary and not even for this lifetime. They are eternal. Man, shall we stand? Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord. We just thank you, Father. We just thank you. We just thank you, Lord. Less than a week ago, four days ago, we celebrated as a nation 70 years of our freedom from the British oppression. But today, Lord, even now, most of the people in this land, maybe even some standing today, all of us at some level, are not free from the oppression of the enemy. I pray, Father, the word that you gave me today will open our eyes and our ears. That you came to set the captives free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
For this purpose the Son of Man came that he might destroy the works of the devil. I pray, Father, for those who do not know you, they would make a choice today to receive you. To repent, turn away, and to turn towards you. Not to run away from you, but to stand there in your presence like the woman caught in adultery, Lord. We are all men and women caught in sin. Help us not to run away from you, but to stand in your presence because there is only one voice, one voice alone in this universe who will say, I do not condemn you. Go, do not sin again. One voice. Help us not to run away from that voice, but to run towards that voice of God. To allow you to come in and start the cleaning up from within. To know you love us. With an eternal, everlasting love. We never have to work for your love. Because you have accepted us in the beloved. But we have to fight a daily battle for the approval of God on our lives. Help us to know the difference between hurt and harm. That our God will never harm us. He will hurt us. So that he can correct us. He will hurt us. So that we can partake of his righteousness. And I pray, Father, we will allow and receive that hurt, the discipline of the Father in our lives and be trained by it, O God. So that, O Father, in this tenth year of the church, O Father, you will have a harvest. You will have a set of disciples and not followers. Householders. So that, O Lord, you can find pleasure in us. Open our eyes that we may see you as you really are. Open our ears that we might hear you as you really speak. And understand the greatness and the awesomeness of your holiness and your righteousness, O God. Thank you, thank you, Father. Prepare us. Prepare us for the days ahead. Because darkness is covering the whole earth. But you said your light shall come upon your people. Help us, Lord, to receive that light in increasing measure. Thank you, thank you, Father. I bless your people in your name. May your hand of strength, power, healing, deliverance rest upon each one and meet them at their point of need. Set your people free, Lord, daily, Lord, so that we might worship you. We may walk with you. We may serve you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, Father. Now by faith, believing the word of God has cleansed us. The blood of Jesus has cleansed us. And the spirit of God sanctified us. We lift up holy hands in your house. And we bless your holy name. And we bless your holy name. We bless your holy name. Thank you, Father. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of us. Amen and amen.